What happens when two bass road warriors spend quality time talking music and life with one of their peers? Bassist educator author David C. Gross and bassist and head honcho of KnowYourBassPlayer.com, Tom Semioli, trade eights with the legends of rock, jazz, funk, blues, folk, country, and more. Notes from an artist. Revealing conversations with the legends who've created the soundtrack of our lives. What happens? You're about to find out. It's another episode of Notes from an Artist. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Notes from an Artist. Tonight, we're going to finish up our conversation with author, A&R man, and all-around raconteur, Mitchell Cohn. So along with my co-host, Tom Semioli, I want to get right into this. So let's go. I mean, I happen to like the albums that Iggy Pop made for Arista. They were, yeah, not his most commercially successful, but he never had that much commercial success right. anyway. I mean, it's not like he was he was a top-year artist, except hmm. musically. But, uh, yeah, to a large extent, it's what I was talking about of sort of like that vindication of, of, someone, of someone's talent. Yeah. I think that that's a key to understanding a lot of, of, of a lot of the A&R philosophy of the Heritage Act. Well, I think once you've spent your life at Columbia Records and having signed so many incredible artists in the jazz world and the rock world, his move to Arista was really, it was interesting in a number of regards. First one is, who in their right mind would have signed Anthony Braxton, yeah. Cecil Taylor and Henry Threadgill. And what's most important about that to me, and I talked with them, Tom about this earlier, is that they're all fantastic artists, well-recognized at this point in time, which showed a great deal of foresight with Clive Davis. Another thing about the artists that we're just talking about, the Kinks, Iggy, Grateful Dead, when you think about Arista Records, you think Whitney, you think Kenny G. So in some regards, it was kind of an interesting kind of signing to to get these older artists who were part of a different generation and a much more popular generation as they were years ago. It's almost like he was going, see, I can do this too. I'm sure there had to be a part of that in it. To his credit, first of all, well, one of the things that he he brought with him from Columbia to Arizona. You know, at Columbia, he worked with Herbie Hancock, and, you know, and Weather Report and the Mahavishnu Orchestra and Miles Davis. And he was not unused to seeing the impact of artists that could be categorized as jazz can have on a bigger stage. And second of all, he hired people to run the jazz department, the, you know, the jazz division, and just let them do what they wanted to do. I think he recognized that he's not going to assess Anthony Braxton's music or Cecil Taylor's music or Rand Blake's music. Or that's True. not, you know, he he's not going to put it on and say, you know, this is a great Anthony Braxton album, and this is maybe not this great, or maybe he should work solo or with or with. An orchestra that wasn't his environment. That what that would be, that wasn't his area of expertise. But he hired people that he trusted and gave them free reign, which I think is is not, it's not altruistic. He expected you know a, a return on investment, but he knew that he wanted to be full service, full fledged, multi genre label, and that jazz was going to be a part of it, and that eventually country would be a part of it. Although. I've though that happens outside of the sphere of my book, and that he would hire the right people, as he did in Nashville when he started it in the late 80s with Tim DeVoe uh, and, 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 and his staff, signed Alan Jackson and Brooks and Dunn. But it wasn't like we in New York were involved in the day-to-day -day of that. We just 
Clive just found Tim and Tim found a great staff and they built Arista Nashville into something incredible. That was Alan Jackson doing I'd Love You All Over Again, followed by Brooks and Dunn doing My Next Broken Heart. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. A lot of Arista and a lot of the, the mythos of, of Arista is, is around the personality of Clive, certainly. But I think when you investigate it, he gave a lot of leeway, a lot of autonomy to the people around him if they can prove, if, if they can make a convincing argument for it. And I learned that as an A&R guy as well. If I could go into him and say like, you know, this guy, I saw this guitarist, Jeff Healy in Toronto and He's not the greatest songwriter in the world and his band isn't great, but there's something about him and every generation needs a guitar here. That was the Jeff Healy band doing the John Hyatt tune, Confidence Man. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. When you were at Columbia, you worked with Mike Bloomfield and Johnny Winter and, and Carlos Santana, none of whom were great writers necessarily, none of them who sang particularly well if they sang at all. But I think what we could do with Jeff Healy is, is somehow relatable to what you did at Columbia with Bloomfield and Johnny Winter and stuff. And he got it. I mean, you know, to his credit, you go like, I see, I see where you're going with this. It's going to take a great producer. It's going to take you finding great songs. You better get to work on that. And I went to Nashville and found a couple of songs by, written by John Hyatt. And then one of them became like a big hit. And the album went platinum. And thank goodness. <laughs> but it was very much a matter of make your case. Because if you can't get past, if you can't convince him, you're not going to convince the rest of the company and the company is not going to get excited and that excitement is not going to translate to the rest of the universe. So, you know, in a way, I mean, like I said, it, 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 it was very educational. It, 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 it was very enlightening to work there. And what I wanted to do uh, as part of the book is bring up some of the artists like David Foreman and Willie Nile and Quasar and Linda Lewis and acts that Arista had just as much belief in as any of the artists we're talking about. And they had just as much faith that this was worthwhile and, and viable. And that somehow, with all the best intentions in the world, with all the great press, they made good music and it didn't quite connect. You've been listening to David Foreman doing If It Takes All Night, Willie Nile with It's All Over, the band Quasar doing Seeing Stars, and we ended up with Linda Lewis doing Rock and Roll Roller Coaster. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. That is a fascinating aspect of the industry. And, and that's something we learned from reading this book. Yes, I was shocked. I thought, I didn't realize Linda Lewis and Willie Nile recorded for Arista. And I thought to myself, my gosh, if there's two careers. You wonder why they didn't have more commercials. Yeah, or David Foreman, even Graham Parker. I mean, it's like, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, squeezing out I mean the, 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 believe me, the label could not have been more excited when we got Graham Parker, you know, sure. you know when, when he left when he left Mercury and a lot of artists were chasing him. And at the very we thought, OK, he's got he could be like our Elvis Costello meets Bruce Springsteen. And sure. the rumor he, he made was, his best records with ours. The rumor was one of the best live bands I've ever yeah. seen, sure. ever seen in my in my life. Every show was just like full tilt balls out exciting it's squeezing out sparks critic loved it village voice named it the album of the year that that year the, the, right, the critics right. poll he made a few albums after that for us and you know, to diminishing commercial returns and you go like 
why not? Why why didn't it happen on a big on, on a bigger scale? There's no real something that can't be quantified, but it's something that could be asked. That was Graham Parker doing Saturday Night Is Dead. This is notes from an artist. CygnusRadio.com. I remember uh, again buying those Arista records. I was a huge Graham Parker fan. What we also learned from this book is how important the rock press was. And it made me think of the time I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, about, I'm going to say about 10 years ago. And there was a letter under glass by Pete Townsend. I guess he was writing to Rolling Stone, whoever yeah. it was. A 10-page, beautifully written letter admonishing this writer for giving Quadrophenia, which was the latest Who record, a lukewarm review. Uh, and I thought to myself, my gosh, you're Pete Townsend. It's 1973. The Who are one of the biggest bands in the world. Why do you care what a writer from Rolling right, Stone yeah. wrote? Because you're gonna, this album is going to go multi-platinum. Your, your tour is going to be a sellout. Why Why the big deal about what some guy in, in, in Rolling Stone says, yeah, this is a, a, a lukewarm album. Talk about the importance of the rock press and how that could make or do in that era. In that era, it, we're, talking about, we're talking about the mid-70s, a rave review from someone like Paul Nelson in Rolling Stone or Robert Palmer in the New York Times or... Kilburn um, in the Dave LA. Marsh or, or the Kilburn in the LA Times. That could literally put an artist on the map. I mean, it made Elton John. It made Elton John. Hilburn's review made Hilburn. Hilburn's review is one of the things that made Elton John. Robert Palmer's review of Willie Nile was one of the reasons that Clive Clive went down to see him. You know, Mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, how can I not catch this act? The Rock Press, Paul, unless Dave Marsh and Cream and Trouser Press, and they all had like a great deal of influence. That certainly does not exist anymore. I don't think that a record review in, in any publication, online or, or, or not, is going to suddenly <laughs> catapult someone who is this person to everybody needs to know about this person. That was Dr. Hook in the Medicine Show doing cover of the Rolling Stone. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Clive would grill the publicity department as much as he would grill the promotion department or the sales department. It's like, are we getting enough attention on Are the right people going to come to this showcase? Are we going to get everyone down to the bottom line? The Times going to review it. Is John Rockwell come? That was, that was a big, big part of the temperament of the label. It's sort of like, it was very press-driven. Yeah. And Going I think, back to my amplifier story, just to interrupt for a second, I remember that Dido's record was not a hit out of the box, but Clive kept advertising every month. He took a page ad out in yeah. our magazine. And we were a small indie magazine, 20, 30,000 readers. That's not a lot. Rolling Stone throws out that many issues uh, every week. Yeah. And yet he would advertise. And of course, advertising is what keeps the lights on in the uh, in the building. And he stuck with her and eventually she broke through. But it seems that, yes, he was very, very hands-on when it came to promotion and the importance of letting the writers know and the right people know uh, about his own. Yeah, I think to a large extent that was pretty unusual for a record company president yeah. to be that involved, that hands-on with the rock press. It certainly, I, you know, I sat in many, many a meeting where he'd ask, okay, what's going on? Is the New York Times going to cover this? Is the guy from right. Newsday going to come? Is... Who's going to be there? What does what does Robert Criscow think of this record? Criscow gave one of our records an A. Five knew about it, not because someone told them, but because he he looked at the Village Voice and he wanted to see what was going on. Yeah, the Paz and Jop um, column, right? He called <laughs> yeah. it Paz and Jop. Yeah, Paz the Paz and Jop every year. Whole, I mean, look yeah. when, uh, when Squeezing Out Sparks won the Paz and Jop 
pole that that year and there was a big party at tavern on the green for it it's like that was an exciting time and acts like ian dury and and the kinks and, and certainly iggy and patty smith for sure out of what kept the flame burning was that they kept getting press attention because to a certain extent it matters. You've been listening to Patti Smith doing Birdland. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com That's why Pete Townsend picks up Rolling Stone and cares about it. Look, I'm just happy I didn't write for Ream or Phonograph Record during the age of of the internet where everybody can comment on your review. If I wrote a negative review of Queen in Cream, maybe I'd hear about from three people you know, that, that had an issue with it because you had to sit down, write a letter, stamp it, take it somewhere. If I wrote a negative review of Cream, if the internet existed then, my social media would have been barraged by people telling me I didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. <laughs> you know, at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about 65 versus 71, 72, etc. I want to go back because what I found most fascinating about the book were the, the beginnings of Bell, Mala, and those records. And I'll tell you why, because while you were in the the music business in the 70s, I had just gotten out of Berkeley College and music was on the road with Aztec Two-Step, which Mm. was a regular at the bottom line. So I, I was spending my time also going out listening to a lot of great music and also experiencing a lot of great recordings. So for me, the beginnings of, of that book were fascinating. Particularly, my sister was Paul Lecker's writing partner. And was she, Paul Lecker, who wrote oh, Green Paul Tambourine. Yeah, sure, sure, of course. And she wrote for the Brooklyn Bridge, the Peppermint Rainbow, really bubblegum stuff. But it put her through college. So God bless her for that. Yeah. Those beginning years are fascinating. Uh, the Brill Building and, and all of the great songs and stuff. I, 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 I love that era. And I, I, I love finding out more and more about that era as much as I think I know. When I was looking through old issues of uh, Billboard and Record World and Cashbox, to research yeah. this book and I found out about the way that Larry Utah ran Bell Amy Mala it was an A&R philosophy that I'd never seen anywhere else he didn't really have in-house A&R he relied on making deals with independent producers and production companies that would then feed into the Bell Amy Mala system and they would just be responsible for the marketing and, and, and promotion it was fascinating to me he made deals with, you know, he made a deal with Bob Crew he made deals with the guy that brought them James and Bobby Purify and the people that brought him the box tops and he would go to England all the time and pick up independent records from Mickey Most and Larry Page. You were just listening to James and Bobby Purify doing I'm Your Puppet, The Box Tops doing The Letter, Susie Quattro doing Can the Can, and Vanity Fair doing Hitching a Ride. All four records were released through Bell Records in the United States. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. He put out the first Ellen John single. In America. In, in, in America, and then decided not to put out the album. That was Elton John doing Lady Samantha from the album Empty Sky. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. He passed on the album because when the single wasn't a hit right so but three dog night picked up on it and made some money for Elton. and that was lady samantha by three dog night this is notes from an artist on cygnusradio.com to me a fascinating way of running the business he compared it to united artist films where it's like they don't have their own production company independent producers independent film producers would bring their projects to UA and they would market and distribute. And this was the music industry equivalent of that, which I had never heard of. I mean, I'd never 
never heard of anyone else. All the record executives that I grew up knowing about, I'm Erdogan and Jerry Wexler or Barry Gordy or all those guys, Sam Phillips. I mean, they were their own A&R guys. Talent walked in the door. They said, yes to a few and no to most and discovered Carl, Carl Perkins and Elvis Presley who were Smokey Robinson and, and Marvin Gaye. He didn't do that. He wasn't he wasn't right. going out there looking for artists. He was looking for records, which again I I, I think was kind of was kind of kind of un, un, unprecedented. And then of course Bell Records changed hands and Clive Davis took over and in one of the interviews I read, Record World or Billboard, he said, you know, that's not how I don't believe in that. I mean, right. I believe in my own, a, having my own A&R people, my own staff, my own. He was essentially the head of A&R for Ariston, every other label that he have ever worked for. So he hired, you know, Bob Fyden and Rick Chertoff and they brought him acts and friends of his turned him on to acts, but it was very in-house A&R became the machine's engine. But in digging through all the records that came out on Amy Moe and Bell, the, the, the records that were made in New Orleans by Alan Susie Toussaint. Quattro, yeah, Susie Quattro. Oh my God, the records. Yeah, but Susie Quattro makes sense for it's, Bell because it was she was a pop act. What was really interesting was Six months before it came out in America, my sister brought back a copy of Spooky Tooth from London. And that had no business being on Bell Records. I mean, even in my limited scope as being a teenage uh, wannabe <laughs> yeah. musician, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at that because I had the original, of course. Right, from, right. From Britain, you know, this makes no sense whatsoever. I think that was a fairly appropriate title. It's called I've Had Enough. It's from the Who's album Quadrophenia. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Tobacco Road by Spooky Tooth from their album, It's All About. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. I had forgotten that as well, but it was the late 60s. And if, if you weren't in the rock game, yeah. you weren't really in the music business. And, and you know, things, things were certainly changing. In 66, the division of AM and FM radio had happened. It was the birth of like, you know, progressive rock or like radio bands like Spooky Tooth and then finally Utah made the deal with Windfall Records that got him out later Woodstock famously and became the first like I guess you'd say you know heavy heavy rock on Bell that, that made a connection that was Mountain with Never In My Life this is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com to his credit Utah I mean he kept trying I mean he tried with, with, with a lot of different people and a lot of different indies but when Bell got absorbed by Columbia Pictures in the early 70s, it became the vehicle for the Partridge family because mm-hmm. it, that was produced by, by the film company. And, uh, you know, they had Tony Orlando and Dawn, again, a hit factory. And they picked up some hits from the UK, you know, you know the sweet. You've been listening to The Partridge Family, I Think I Love You, Tony Orlando and Dawn doing Knock Three Times, and The Sweet doing Ballroom Blitz. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. By 71, 72, 73, it was clear that the Bell A&R philosophy was not sustainable. I was in grad school at the time, so I wasn't studying it that carefully. But when Alan Hirschfeld at Columbia Pictures offered the head of Bell, uh, well, the Columbia Pictures division to Clive, I think it was obvious that what he wanted was Clive to find Santana uh, or Janis Joplin or 
blood, sweat, and tears. Or he, was, he wanted to be in that game. And ironically, if I'm using the word correctly, the first things that came out of Bell, out of Arista, were records that could have been on Bell. Mandy or Midnight Blue or Bay City Rollers. They could have been Bell singles. Oh, right, so, yeah, sure. and, they were, and they were Bell artists. That was certainly an interesting combination. Barry Manilow doing Mandy. Melissa Manchester doing Midnight Blue and the Bay City Rollers doing Saturday Night. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. In a way, the very, very start of Arista was kind of like a continuation, but then it diverged wild. Then, obviously, you signed Patti Smith, you signed Lou Reed, you're in a different game. What was interesting, we were um, uh, interviewing uh, Carmine Rojas. And he reminded me that when he left Baby Grand, he called me to take his place. I called Eric Brazilian. They were dropped. Yeah. <laughs> However, the, yeah, the, yeah. the part of the story that's really great is never enough. The original is an incredible tune. And <laughs> Patty uh, Spice made it a, a hit. That is funny. You mentioned that's exactly when I joined Arista. It, 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 okay. In the summer of 77. And I started meeting all the staff because I was writing the press releases and stuff. And I met the, the, the head of rock promotion at the time. His name was Scott Jackson. And he played me Baby Grand. He said, this is going to be big. This is good. This is going to blow. This is going to blow up. This is our, this is our, this is a platinum album. That was Never Enough by Baby Grand. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. All right, Mitchell. Thanks right, for being our guest. Again, we'll, keep you, we'll keep you posted. We'll keep you posted. We'll try right. and sell some books, for goodness sake. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate All it. Right. Be well, right. sir. Take care. You too, guys. Well, folks, there you have it. I want to thank Mitchell Cohn and, of course, my partner in crime, Tom Semioli, for another fantastic interview. Part two of the Mitchell Cohn interview. So, if you would like to re-listen to this broadcast or want to revisit any of the other Notes from an Artist broadcasts, you can find every single one of them on the Notes from an Artist podcast, available with all of the major podcast sites. So, we look forward to seeing you next week. Have a wonderful week. Enjoy the summer. God bless.